0: The title of the talk tonight is What Kind of Effort? What kind of effort do we need to make for this practice to work, to flower, to become a living realization? I'd like to begin with um, two instructions that I received, uh, one many years ago, and another instruction uh, 15 years after that one. And they illuminate the, I hope, they illuminate the um, range of instructions we often hear about the place of wise effort or right effort in this practice and in the Buddhist tradition. Way back in the 1970s, I wandered into a Zen center in Los Angeles. I was quite, um, I thought the the Zen teacher there was, the, the Roshi there was a wonderful person. So I decided to do some, you know, retreat practice there. And I had never received any instructions in meditation. And the first instruction I received was at the beginning of the Sashin, the retreat, every sitting period, one of the attendants in the hall would, is it too loud? Yeah. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. I can't help myself. I try to speak really quietly. (laughs) Right effort. Um... So one of the at- <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it just right. One of the attendants in the in the hall would begin the sitting period with this he would shout into the hall Die on the pillow. Die on the pillow. <laughs> And of course, I'd never heard anything quite like this in my life, and I could not even begin to imagine what was supposed to happen, but, but I knew it was important somehow, and I was making my best effort for something like this, something like that to occur. And of course, it was completely futile. I almost died, but not in the sense that they meant <laughs> Flash forward 15 years later when I had then since wandered into the Vipassana world and had become quite involved in this community and uh, was sitting a retreat with with some of my peers uh, with a Tibetan Lama named Sokhni Rinpoche, some of you know him. And he gave us, for the, we, were, we didn't know him very well. This was the first time he came. And he suddenly, and we, he loved the fact that we sat and we were in silence and we seemed so disciplined. And, but he suddenly during a meditation session said, stop meditating, stop meditating. And that was an instruction meant to show us that we were making some kind of extra effort that wasn't necessary, that was preventing a more natural open awareness from being cultivated, from being developed. So between these two instructions of die on the pillow and stop meditating, <laughs> there was a whole journey in which I learned some things about wise effort, and that's what I'd like to share with you tonight, some of, some of my, my learnings along the way. These two instructions also point to the very paradoxical nature of effort in practice. To paraphrase a saying that I'm sure you've heard before, what we speak of cannot be found through effort, yet only those who make effort find it. That's the paradox of effort. This essential paradox asks us to reflect on our own journey, So let me ask you, what have you learned about effort in your practice? When has making effort served you? What kind of effort has served you? What kind of effort has not worked? In our lives in the world, we make a lot of effort, don't we? We make a lot of effort to get our lives organized, etc., etc. Some of it very useful. We can see that the world operates uh, mostly from greed, aversion, and delusion. And so there's a lot of effort made in our world in the service of those things. Just read the headlines. Just listen to the news for 10 minutes. What do you hear? Ravenous greed running around the world power, wealth, success, destructive aggression, again in the service of power, wealth, success. And then, of course, there are all the possibilities for distraction in our world, for escaping from reality. The world also offers us many, many ways of indulging in our denial of the facts. So in very stark contrast, we come on retreat and we're here making enormous effort in the service of what? The Buddha spoke of effort in the service of awakening and strengthening wholesome qualities of consciousness and diminishing or eliminating negative or unwholesome tendencies of mind. The Buddhist tradition offers an array of different practices meant to accomplish this aim, what we call skillful means for arousing and maturing the wholesome states and diminishing or eliminating the unwholesome tendencies. You know those ones, the ones that make you suffer. Trungpa Rinpoche described it as the process of transforming the material of mind from expressions of ego's ambition into expressions of basic sanity and goodness. So here on retreat, we bring this quality of mindful awareness to all aspects of our experience to understand how we are suffering and how we might undo or release our suffering. This is the practice of mindfulness. This doesn't happen, or very, 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 very rarely happens spontaneously. It doesn't happen spontaneously. You sit down and, you know, you see suffering in the end of suffering in a half an hour sitting. It doesn't happen so readily for most of us. If it has happened for you, we'll give you your money back. <laughs> but for most of us, it takes time and effort to begin this great unraveling this great undoing of how we get caught. The practice of the Brahma-viharas, which we are offering every day, is another way of encouraging and strengthening positive qualities of consciousness to take root in our own hearts and minds. We make effort in the service of metta to see the good in ourselves and in others. We make effort to develop compassion so that we can respond to suffering with an open heart. We make effort to develop mudita, joy in the good fortune and happiness of others. We make effort to realize our capacity for equanimity, the supreme balance of mind and heart, which can ride the waves of life without getting thrown around, overwhelmed, These are habits of mind which are not usual. And so it takes some time and effort to cultivate them. So the question we are each left with is, how do we do this? How How to best apply our effort to this task? How can we use effort to support the growth of the wholesome, and diminish the impact of the negative? This is actually a deep question. I would say it's a lifelong question for most of us, and that is really the best kind of question. It's like a living koan in our lives. John showed us last night, talking about how he turned to the equanimity practice, in relationship to his daughter's situation. He was finding what was needed. So I want to share with you a little of some of what I've learned in my explorations over the years. Looking back, I can think of times in my practice when I made huge effort Huge, way beyond anything I could ever have imagined when I started. I I had this very, very naive idea at the beginning of my practice that I, you know, I like the loved hearing the Dharma. I loved the teachings, the teachers, the retreats. I thought it was just dandy. But I thought I'd do a few and get it and be on my merry way. That would be it. I had no idea what it would require or the kind of effort that would be asked then when I began to make effort and I saw the rewards that came, that was very inspiring to me. So there was that phase. And then there were other times in my practice when all effort seemed to be utterly futile. And there were other times when there was a quality of effortless effort, when I was carried by the momentum of concentration and mindfulness and felt there was no apparent effort being made, and yet there was tremendous energy for practice, no matter what. So tonight I want to talk about three different kinds of effort that we might find in our practice and that arise at different times. The first is what I call inspired effort it comes out of being inspired, out of inspiration. How does that happen? Well, we hear something, or we read something, or we hear a teacher, or we uh, talk to a friend who's been on retreat, or a being who inspires us. We meet the Dalai Lama, someone who gives us a sense of something rare and quite wonderful in this world, a new vision, perhaps, of mm-hmm. potential, of possibility. This happened with with myself when I met a lama. Long before I even started practice, I met a Tibetan lama, Tartang Tolku, who since established the Nyingma Center in Berkeley. And I, I knew nothing. I, I knew nothing about Buddhism, but, but I... Found myself at a, a kind of weekend thing he was doing, and and I didn't understand very much of it. But there was one moment, and it, it was a moment that changed my life. Actually, I can quite. I, it was so vivid. There was a moment when somebody asked him a question about compassion, and he 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 answered. But what I felt was that the whole room suddenly lit up with this energy of compassion. I felt compassion as a living force in that room. Something entered me that had never be, never entered before. I saw that compassion wasn't just a nice word, that there was something there that was quite quite a powerful force. So that got my interest. It inspired me to find out more, find out more about this teaching. And last night when John was talking about Asia, you know, John talks about Asia, you get so inspired, at least I do. And when I first, my first trip to Asia was in 1977 and we went to Nepal and we went to this stupa called Bodhanath Stupa in Kat, outside of Kathmandu and um, it was a full moon night. It's beautiful stupa which was, because of the full moon, they had covered it with candles, little candles, just all over the stupa. And there were a group of about a dozen people from Ladakh, Ladakhis, doing full prostrations all around the stupa, saying their mantra and doing their prostrations. And I had never seen anything like that. And I had heard that they had come all the way from Ladakh, on pilgrimage, on foot, doing prostrations. I just couldn't imagine people making such an inspired effort. So I still think of them sometimes, and it, there's some kind of inspiration that I feel. Of course, I'm also very inspired. I feel very fortunate that, that I teach the Dharma because it's something that inspires me. I feel very inspired by the Dharma in a daily way, by these teachings, by our meetings with you, by practicing together, by being on retreat together. And as I age, the Dharma seems like a great, wonderful gift to have in one's life. So there's an ongoing sense of the Dharma as an inspiration what has inspired you? Bring it into your practice. Remind yourself of what you feel. Other, you know, if you don't, whatever we feel out there is somehow in us. So it connects us with that deeper place in ourselves, from which it is a. It's wonderful to practice. Now, sometimes our effort is awakened not in that sense, by inspiration, but more as a result of being in a crisis, of suffering, or of a situation in our life, which is, we could call, a kind of failure. The woman who worked with Thich Nhat Hanh during the Vietnam War, Sister Chan Kong, writes about her experience of um, trying to help the villagers during the Vietnamese War After villages had been bombed, they would go in, she and other volunteers, and they would try to help the villagers rebuild their villages. And so she tells a story about one village which was bombed, they rebuilt, was bombed, they rebuilt, was bombed, they rebuilt. And she said, finally, the fourth time, she just, you know, kind of lost it. And she was feeling completely discouraged, completely... Uh, heartbroken and angry. But she said, then she said, I had to restore the clearness of my mind. She meditated and she said, I released the tension and tried only to dwell in the present moment. And at that moment, I saw a little flower make her way through all the ruin of all the bombing, There was a little flower still blooming in the midst of the ruin, and I was truly moved. I could see, oh, the little flower has done her best. Why not me? So I looked around and I saw in the ruins quite a few bodhisattvas, including that little flower. And I had to do my best to go in that direction. I saw that life is not only cruelty and confusion and ignorance, but life also has many heartful people, people who are trying to do their best. You don't need to see 10,000 flowers in order to see that so much beauty in life is waving to you and saying hello to you. You only need to see one little flower. At the right moment, one little flower, one little bird, one little ant on your path may inspire your effort. Effort is tricky because it's very connected to control, trying to control the outcome. In our culture, we mostly compete to get ahead, to stay safe, to have security. And this is where our effort goes. We try very hard through control to try to get the results we think are the right results to achieve our goals. And for this, our culture gives us many strategies and plans and agendas. And not being in control, not getting the results is cause for what? For a sense of failure or a sense of shame, like you're not good enough or you're not doing it right. Well, Rumi says this. Who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in. I should be suspicious of what I want. (laughs) And here's a nurse talking about how she sees patients trying to control the outcome of exercise, diet, nutrition, doing all the right things. She says, we are trying to control things in our lives. We are upset when life does not bend to our control. That is the ordinary human experience without the Dharma. We say to ourselves, I will do the research, I will do everything right, and it will work. If it doesn't, I will sue. <laughs> this is how we respond to dukkha in America I'm suffering, and someone must be to blame. It doesn't occur to us that there might be no one to blame not even ourselves. It might just be the nature of the way things are, undependable, unworthy of our confidence, unreliable, impermanent. And I see this in my experience as I age, that those things I have always relied on Show me my lack of control, that when they start to disappear, I see how, out, how not in control many aspects of my mind and body are. Here's a poem by Billy Collins called Forgetfulness. This is for all of you over 60. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion... The entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. <laughs> As if one by one, the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to the little fishing village where there are no phones. <laughs> Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps. The address of an uncle, the capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the date of a famous battle in a book on war, No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. (laughs) So when we try, we make effort and nothing works. What then? We often feel loss, failure, again roomy. Rumi seemed to have looked into this quite a bit. He has a lot of very good things to tell us about this territory. He has a little poem called The Importance of Failing. God fixes a passionate desire in you and then disappoints you. God does that a hundred times. God breaks the wings of one intention and then gives you another, cuts the rope of contriving so you'll remember your dependence. But sometimes your plans work out. You feel fulfilled and in control. That's because if you were always failing, you might give up. But remember, it is by failures that lovers stay aware of how they're loved. Failure is the key to the kingdom within. Zen Master Dogen said, a master's life is one continuous mistake. Are we ready for that? Can it be a way of learning? The second kind of effort we could call applied effort. Once our effort has been activated... In our practice, the next stage requires that we apply our effort to keep looking within, to keep turning the mind toward the Dharma. Or as Carol said in the February retreat, I love this phrase, mingling the mind with the Dharma. That's what you're doing here on retreat by listening to the instructions, practicing, listening to Dharma talks, speaking with your teacher, sitting, listening to your own instructions to yourself through the day, returning over and over to your present experience, learning in this practice that we make the present our basic reference point. As mindfulness becomes more available in the culture and is being taught in all kinds of situations now, schools, hospitals, yoga classes. There's a tendency, uh, I've seen some descriptions of mindfulness as mindfulness takes you into the present. And present moment, wonderful moment. It's a little bit misleading, as if if you just get into the present, your life will be blissful and happy, and all your problems will be solved. Now, is this true? (laughs) I don't think so. You have found, I'm sure, in your own practice sometimes, the present is like that. Other times it's very challenging, very difficult. It is rather that the present... So what is it about the present moment? if it's not just this delightful place to inhabit all the time, it is rather that the present moment is the only place in which the truth can be known as a living experience. The truth can be known as a living experience. And where transformation happens, where change can actually occur, only in the present can that happen. In the present, we see the truth of suffering. In the last six days here, all of you, I'm sure, have seen the truth of suffering. The aversion, the doubt, the struggle, the confusion, the liking, not liking. Okay, so you may wonder, okay, well, here's the the suffering part. Where's the end? Where is it? They say this is, you know, about suffering and the end of suffering. But it's not going away, at least not in the way that you would like it to. So here is one of the paradoxes of effort. Maybe it goes away, maybe it does not. Suzuki Roshi was teaching a retreat once, and he said this, the difficulties you are having now. And then he paused, and everybody's like waiting, thinking, you know, okay. He's going to say, we'll soon be well on their way, you know. We'll soon be gone. The difficulties you are having now will soon be gone. But no, he said this, the difficulties you are having now Will be with you for the rest of your life. <laughs> what if this is true? We don't want to believe it, but what if it is true? The liberation, the alchemical transformation that happens with practice is that we change our way of relating to all that we feel is so difficult. We learn. We can be curious instead of judging. We can be patient instead of being agitated. We can be compassionate instead of condemning. We can be spacious and allowing instead of controlling. And this can only happen in the present. So the question always becomes, how do we meet what is difficult? all the unwanted, uninvited guests. Here's a poem that speaks of this transformation by Pesta Gertler called The Healing Time. She says, finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life all the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, and I lift them one by one close to my heart and I say, holy, holy. This kind of transformation stretches our capacity And effort is a support for this kind of transformation, to transform no into yes, this too. Effort supports us to go further in our capacity to hold our experience than we can imagine. I'd like to encourage you at this point in the retreat to begin to challenge some of your own habits on retreat. We develop retreat habits, you know, a little routine, and sometimes we get into a very comfortable routine. That's, that's lovely. We've been saying relax, rest, all of that is good. But we need to also remind ourselves to make a little more effort at times to stretch our capacity. That might look like staying up a little bit later at night. That might look like getting up a little bit earlier in the morning. That might look like doing a morning of sitting, walking, sitting, walking without breaks. What would stretch your capacity gently but firmly? Another Zen story which occurred many years ago in my my Zen phase back in the 70s, and I I have the greatest respect for for Zen and the teachings of Zen and the teachers and the practices. I think I I landed on the Zen shores way too early in my practice, so I couldn't really take very good advantage of what was being offered. And my first full-on Zen retreat was at Mount Baldy with a very traditional uh, Roshi named Sazaki Roshi, very... All the stories you hear about the traditional Roshis, he well, he was it, you know, fierce, full of energy, just full on. So my friend said to me, this girlfriend I had, she said, oh, my friend told me that I should go sit this Zen retreat. Do you want to come with me? Oh, that sounds like fun. Let's go together. We'll both, you know, it'll be a novel experience, something to laugh about. So we went and, and I, you know, I was so clueless. But anyway, we were suddenly there and three in the morning, we're getting up, we're running into the chanting room, <laughs> chanting for a half an hour in Japanese really wakes you up. <laughs> then our first interview of the day with the Roshi, we run to the room and they show us how to run in the room, you sit down, you do your bow and he asks you a question So I ran in there and sat down first morning, and he asked me this question. He said, what is your Buddha nature when you hear the sound of a bird? And my response was, I beg your pardon. (laughs) Nobody in my whole life. I had a PhD in psychology. Nobody had ever asked me such a question. I couldn't even imagine what the man was wanting to hear. And I had to, for the next seven days, four times a day, go in there and be completely humiliated by this question. I hadn't a clue. I had not a clue. But that was just the, the least of it. There was all this this practice to do during the day. We had to sit and walk with the group. We had no time out except for a half an hour after lunch. We were completely, you know, sit, you know, and you had to sit with your arms and your tongue. And your, oh, I couldn't do anything right. I did everything wrong. One continuous mistake until finally one day I had my Zen nervous breakdown. I started sobbing uncontrollably. In the Zendo, they had to carry me out. And they sort of suggested that maybe I'd had enough and it was time to go home. So I heard that and that arose my stubbornness, and no way was I going to go home. I was going to see this thing. <laughs> anyway, it went on like that, and the only, only resource I had was my stubbornness and my willpower, and I learned really absolutely nothing except that I could survive, uh, you know, Zen boot camp. That was about it. So this is not useful kind of effort. And um, <laughs> and yet, I think it really has been common in this scene to imagine that there is something like this necessary at times. Um, so understanding that that doesn't get you very far is a useful thing, that it has much less to do with willpower, and everything to do with mindfulness. When we are mindful in the present, when we are in touch with the one who knows, remember that one, the one who knows? That one who knows knows what kind of effort we need to make. That means when you're being mindful in the present and you're sitting, say, and you get very dull, you get very sleepy, the one who knows says, you know, wake up, bring a little energy, open your eyes, breathe a little more deeply, bring some energy into the system. That's what's needed, that kind of effort. Or if you're chopping vegetables in the kitchen some morning and you keep getting distracted by conversations the cooks are having or something going on in the kitchen The one who knows will say, come back, get focused, stay present. It's dangerous, you know, chopping without paying attention. The one who knows will bring you back, will help you to stay focused. It will show you the kind of effort that is needed. Mindful awareness lets us know. So the third kind of effort I want to talk about is what I would call sustaining effort sustaining effort. We've aroused effort. We've applied effort. Doing this practice is like doing a a long marathon. And what kind of effort do you need in a marathon? You need a kind of sustaining effort to keep going no matter what. And you also need a certain appreciation of the paradoxical nature of all effort. Again, Suzuki Roshi, who said, everything is perfect, and there's a lot of room for improvement. Both are true. How to live in harmony with this truth? So at this stage of practice, This quality of understanding our effort is what sustains us over time. What we need is greater trust in the unfolding process of practice, greater trust in the natural great perfection of things, even when this truth may not be obvious or seem like enough. We all get tested in this way. There was a phase in my practice, I felt like, for some years I felt like I'd been on a wonderful treasure hunt and I kept getting clues and finding the next treasure and it was just very rich and happening like that and then all of, not all of a sudden, but gradually it just seemed like my practice completely dried up and nothing was happening, nothing seemed to be working, nothing, nothing even though I was making effort. So, of course, doubt set in and got projected out onto the teachers, like, do they really know what they're doing? Maybe this is a dead end here, you know. But I kept at it, and now I can see that in in looking back on this long, fallow period, that with patience and trust and, and quite a bit of just surrender, the next big letting go happened on its own, but it came in its own time and in its own way. It was not at all under my control. It's like this. This is from Stephen Batchelor. Imagine lying on a hilltop. You are gazing at the overcast sky, waiting for the clouds to thin out or break apart. They are gray, but slowly and quietly moving. There is nothing you can do to make them separate. Any effort is futile. No matter what state of mind you are in, the clouds will open at their own time and the sun will shine through. Does personal effort play no part, no role at all? The more prepared and waitful you are, the more you will be able to benefit from the breaking open of the clouds. So the effort needed here is the perseverance to be patient and still. If you are impatient, you will become distracted and disturbed, insensitive to what might happen at any moment. Then the moment will pass you by, the break in the clouds will go unnoticed. Things happen in their own time and in their own way. And this is a big piece of learning. We are not in charge of our process in the way we imagine ourselves to be. And our part is to keep showing up, staying present, open, allowing the unknown to reveal itself in its own time and in its own way. And in this regard, we have impermanence on our side. Things will change, no matter how stuck we may feel. Octavio Paz wrote a beautiful poem. He said, After chopping off all the arms that reached out to me, after boarding up all the windows and doors, after building my house on the rock of no, after cutting out my tongue and eating it, after forgetting my name and the name of my birthplace and the name of my race, after judging and senten- sentencing myself to perpetual waiting and perpetual loneliness. I heard against the stones of my dungeon the humid, tender, insistent onset of spring. So, wherever you are, however, you are exploring effort, in this practice of mindful awareness, the aim is always the same to keep turning our attention towards the present, to this very lovely moment that's always now and here. Not in order to arrive somewhere in the future, not to use the present as a means to some future end, but to learn to inhabit the present more and more fully. The present is where we connect with the truth as a living experience. The present is not theoretical. It is alive. And there's always something we don't know in the present. That is why we need to keep looking. The more we look, the more we un- uncover, discover. Everything we see. right here, right now, in this unpresent, unfolding before our eyes. The Buddha call this habit we develop of turning towards the present a fortunate attachment. You can be as attached to the present as you like. So what kind of effort is needed for this? On this retreat, we have been emphasizing a relaxed attention and that certainly helps, but we need more than that. It is an attention that is both relaxed and attuned to what is present. I like to use the word attuned, effort that helps us to attune to what is here. I looked up the definition of the word attune. It means to adjust something to become receptive or responsive to something else. In this case, we could say we are attuning our minds, our hearts, our bodies to become receptive and responsive to what is just here, to what is present. This is the effort needed. This understanding of how to attune ourselves to what is present. Right now, I'd like to invite you to put one hand on your heart and one hand on your belly. Attuning ourselves to the present involves these centers as well. It's not a mental activity. It's a whole body awareness that attunes to what is present we can become sensitive to the heart, become sensitive to the belly, to the full body experience. Okay, you can put your hands down. So this is not about creating something that is not here. It's not trying to get rid of anything that is here but to recognize what is here and to harmonize ourselves with it doesn't mean liking everything that's here but it does mean learning to be in harmony with it like eugene said in his talk not being in contention with whatever arises so we're not excluding anything in this in this attuning of ourselves we can open and harmonize our attention with whatever is appearing inside of us or outside of us. We can be in harmony with the lunch line. We can be in harmony with our grief. This is the kind of effort that is possible and that is needed. On a retreat of this length, we have such an opportunity to see some of the deeper truths of practice, to have a living experience of the truth of change, of anicca, to have a living experience of the truth of no-self, to have a living experience of the suffering that comes when we want things to be different than they are. Sometimes I do a chant on retreat about impermanence. All things are impermanent. They arise and they fall away. To be in harmony with this truth brings great happiness. So that is our task, to open ourselves to these truths that are possible to realize. Also, we on this length of a retreat, we have the opportunity to begin to attune ourselves to more refined states of being qualities of silence or stillness, qualities of peace or joy spaciousness, delight. These are more refined states of being that we have the opportunity to begin to sense in this living present moment. So hopefully this talk has or will help you to begin to explore the kind of effort you need in your practice? Do you need to inspire your your effort, to activate your effort? Are you learning how to apply effort to your mindfulness practice or to the metta practice? Are you needing to learn to sustain your effort with trust that things are unfolding as they need to? Are we needing to learn more about how to be so exquisitely attuned in our presence, in our minds, in our hearts, in our bodies to the present. So I'd like to close with uh, something Ramana Maharshi said. There is no greater mystery than this, that we keep seeking reality, though in fact we are reality. May we use our good hearted effort to attune ourselves to that reality. So let's sit together for a moment. There is no greater mystery than this, that we keep seeking reality, though in fact we are reality. Well, it's been nice being with you. I'll see you again sometime.